Can everybody hear me? Can you hear me in the back? Your thumbs up or thumbs down? Is that a thumbs up? <clears throat> Turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. That song we just sang, man, that's a weighty thing. Show us Christ. To show the glory of God through the preaching of his word. It's a weighty thing. I'm glad to be standing before front of a bunch of people who actually want to see Christ. Who want to hear Christ preached. Because man, that's, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to do today. I thought as I was walking up here, man, what's the one thing I could say to, to, to set the tone? I'm going to forget whatever I was going to do here, introduction-wise. What's the one sentence I could say to set the tone for what we're going to see today? And it was, I want to remind you of the life that is in Christ. I want to remind you of the life that is only in Jesus Christ. And most of you, I believe, here actually have that life that's in Christ. And there's some here that don't have that life. That imperishable, undefiled, unfading life forever that's in Jesus Christ. Some people in here right now don't have that. You think life is in this world. And I just want to call you to look around at this world. There's no life here. It's a sin-wrecked world. We're going to see that today. We're going to see the only source of life that a man has. And it's in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask, Lord, that you would show us your glory. That you would bless the preaching of Christ. That you would be pleased again to reveal your son. To, to, to point from heaven that this is my son. This is my beloved son. I pray that we would see Christ today, that he would be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 9, 18. We're continuing in our consecutive preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. And we're at yet another section. We preached through the Sermon on the Mount, and then in chapter 8, Matthew started out giving us these sets of miracles, sets of three miracles. And then every set has been separated by this little narrative section. And last week, we heard the end of that other narrative section uh, after 
Jesus calls Matthew, and then last week, Dustin preached on this conflict about fasting. And so here we start another set, this last set of three miracles from Jesus. Now this particular passage here has a double miracle in it, two miracles in one, so to speak. So as Jesus is on his way to perform a miracle, another miracle happens. And so that's where we are today. You to see in the very first word of this sentence in verse 18, that this is connected to what just happened, what we heard last week. He says, while Jesus was saying these things. So while he's having this conversation with John's disciples about fasting and new wine and old wineskins, this happens. And we've got this incredible shift of scenery and shift of attention that takes place here. And so consider that as we read the text. Matthew 9, 18 through 26. While Jesus was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she had said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Now, this is a very condensed account that Matthew has here that we see a lot more detail over in Mark 5 and Luke 8. And I'll just pull a few of those things in as we go along to provide some detail. So, First, let's go through this in three parts and see, like, what's going on here. This, this is a real historical account, and we need to see and understand and put ourselves in what's going on so that we can get out what God wants us to hear. First, we see a ruler fall down before the king of glory. You see in the first verse, it says, Behold... So while they're still having this conversation, behold, this sudden uh, attention shift away from the conversation about fasting and wineskins, behold, this ruler falls down on his face before Jesus. We see in Mark and Luke that this ruler is actually a ruler of the synagogue there locally. His name is Jairus. 
So he's a ruler of a synagogue and he comes in and it says here he knelt, but it's really more like he fell down, face down, prostrate on the ground at the feet of Jesus Christ. This is what he's doing. And it says that he's begging. Mark and Luke says he's imploring Jesus earnestly. He's pleading with Jesus. And so here's this ruler face down in the dirt begging Jesus. And you have to ask, why? And he answers that question. It says, a ruler came in and knelt before Jesus and he said this, my daughter has just died. And right there we learn that this ruler is also a father. A father of a little girl. Mark and Luke tells us that this little girl is only 12 years old and that she is his only daughter and she's dead. This man's only little girl is dead. I want you to look at those words. My daughter's just died. My only daughter has just died. A little girl. She's, she's, she's just 12 years old. And she's dead. I want you to let that sink in. This is not fiction. I want, to, I want you to stop and mourn the effects of sin. How devastating is this that's happened to this man? How could it happen? Why does this happen? Because this happens. Little girls are not supposed to die. But they do. Every day they do. Man, there's, there's something wrong with this world when mamas and daddies have to watch their little girl, their little boy suffer and die. I want you to think about that. Next time you're tempted to think sin, is, you're tempted to think and take sin too lightly. I want you to think about this is why. Sin is why. Little girls die. This is the effect of sin. Sin came into the world through one man. And death through sin. So death spread to all men. Even little 12 year old girls. And I want you to feel this man's grief. If you've got kids or grandkids or nieces and nephews, I want you to stop and put yourself in this man's shoes right now. And imagine that your precious little boy, a precious little girl, is suddenly gone. And there might be some here that know this grief all too well. Can't even imagine. And I just, I'm sorry if that's true. 
But think about what he's feeling. He's probably run all the way over here to see Jesus. His heart's probably about to explode in his chest. He probably feels like he was going to throw up out of his fear and, and pain. This, is, this should wreck your soul. This should make you want to cry. It really should, and we should. And this is what the Bible says that we should do. We should weep with those who weep. We got people weeping in our midst right now. Jesus wept. And that's, that's not just the shortest verse in the Bible. That's a picture into Jesus' heart. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knew grief. I'm telling you, nobody knows more of the sorrows of a fallen world than the one who created it. Nobody knows more about the effects of sin than the one who came to die for sin. The first words out of his mouth in the Sermon on the Mount are, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And here Jesus has a broken-hearted daddy laying at his feet right now. The ruler. The ruler has been brought low. He calls him a ruler, and he's literally been brought low. Think about that. This, this man probably had money. He probably had prestige. He had some local authority. And guess what? None of that matters. None of it helps now. And here he is. He's face down in the dust begging a carpenter from Nazareth to come help his daughter. How in the world did he get here? Why is he even here? Why did he come here? Why did he come to see Jesus? And I think this scene shows two things about this man. One is that he is helpless. Man, he is absolutely helpless and he knows it. He knows he cannot help his little girl. You see it in his words in verse 18. He says, my daughter has just died. But, he says, and this is the second thing we see about this man. He knows he can't help, but Jesus can. And see, this is what you see here. You see a ruler brought low, but you see him also brought to faith in Christ. Look at this awesome statement of faith that he makes. He says, my daughter has just died, but if you'll come and you lay your hands on her, she will live. There's no doubt this man had heard about Jesus. That there in Capernaum, if you remember what happened over at Peter's house, Jesus came in and healed everybody. No doubt he had heard about Jesus. And he believed what he had heard about Jesus because he's here, face down, begging Jesus. And look at what he believes. This is what he knows for sure. My daughter has just died. And this is what he believes. She will live. If you come, Jesus, if you lay your hands on her, she will live. This man believes that Jesus can give life to the dead. 
Look what he's asking for. He's crying out to Jesus to save my daughter. Man, we should do that more often. He's crying out to Jesus, come, just please just come and touch her. You realize what he's saying? You realize what he is asking Jesus to do? He is asking Jesus to intentionally defile himself. Do you think a ruler of the synagogue knows anything about Numbers 19 where it says, whoever touches the dead will be unclean? He said, come, come do that. Come defy yourself for the sake of my daughter. And how does Jesus respond? It says in verse 19, he rose and followed him. Jesus immediately responds. Why, why do you think Jesus jumps up and answers this man's plea? It's because of his faith, for sure. But is it because he sees, man, this man, this guy's got this magnitude of faith. Is this one of those cases where Jesus might would say, you've heard him say it before. Truly, I tell you, man, there's nobody got this kind of faith. No, not exactly, because the last time he said that was in chapter 8 when there was a Gentile who had somebody sick back at the house. And Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. And this man said, you don't even have to come. Just say something. And this, this guy, he, he doesn't have that kind of faith. He goes, you got to come. You got to come all the way to my house. You got to get in there. You got to get your hands on her and heal her. So he's got this little faith compared to the centurion. Again, we got a little deficient faith, kind of like the disciples in the megastorm. Guess what? Jesus comes anyway. Jesus responds to this man's little Faith. This is because this is who Jesus is. Jesus responds with compassion when he sees helplessness. This man cries out, please, please come help me save my daughter. Jesus responds immediately to this cry of helpless faith. Matthew in chapter 8 and 9 is hammering home these demonstrations of Jesus' power and authority, but don't miss these responses to faith, these moves of compassion to help the helpless. He sums it up. Matthew sums it up at the end of chapter 9. Look at what he says. 9.35, he says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. And here is another perfect example of that summary statement that Jesus is moved with compassion to help a helpless father. But note, this man is helpless, but he is not hopeless. He is face down in front of his only hope. His hope is in Christ alone. And so we see Jesus rise 
and follow after him and, and his disciples go with him. But apparently, everybody in town decides to go with him too. We, we get this from Mark and Luke. It says, a great crowd, not just his disciples, but a great crowd followed Jesus and thronged about him. They pressed in on him. So there's this mob scene headed to this man's house. Why are they going with him? Probably most of them because they think it's showtime. We're off to see a miracle. So here goes the mob off to see a miracle and we get another behold scene change verse 20 it says and behold like on their way behold a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind Jesus and so like a, like a movie scene we got this mob and then this zoom in on this woman fighting her way through the crowd coming up behind Jesus and Matthew tells us in summary form that she's got a big problem she's got a big problem that she's had a long time and she was suffering and she had suffered much that's exactly how Mark says it he, she had suffered much she suffered from a discharge of blood. Apparently there's this relentless discharge of blood of the female variety, except it never stopped. For 12 years, it never stopped. Can you imagine what sort of toll that would take on your body? What sort of toll that would take on your life every day just just dealing with this constant flow of blood loss every day and night headaches and uh, constant fatigue shortness of breath maybe so these are some of the symptoms of this severe uh, anemia that she might have all the time but man aside from that like that's not bad enough. Think about the religious and social effects. Because according to the old covenant, she was unclean. All the time. For 12 years. See, Leviticus 15 says, when a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days. And whoever touches her shall be unclean. And anything that she lies upon shall be unclean. And anywhere she sits shall be unclean. And if it keeps on going, like if it never stops, it says, all the days of the discharge she shall be unclean. Think about the effect that had on her life. Nobody could come near her. Nobody could come anywhere near anywhere she had been near. On, on top of this relentless physical suffering, she would have been treated as an outcast by everybody. She would have been seen as being cursed by God. She probably thought sometimes she was cursed by 
God, and this has been going on for 12 years straight. And Mark and Luke tell us that she's been doing everything she possibly could to make it stop. She had seen every doctor in town and none of them could heal her. She had spent her very last penny. It says all of her living had been spent trying to fix this. But Mark tells us that it, instead of getting better or even staying neutral, it got worse. Every penny, every human effort to do something had come to not just nothing, but worse. Nothing worked. Her health failed. Doctors failed. Her money failed. She's cut off from society, shunned by friends and family, helpless and hopeless until, guess what? She heard about Jesus. That's why she's here. Mark tells us that she had actually heard the reports about Jesus, and that's why she came. Faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. She had heard the word and she came. And I want you to look at what she believes. In Mark's account, Jesus actually confronts her and she confesses everything. And so we've got written here what her thoughts actually are as she sneaks up behind Jesus in verse 21. She says to herself, she says, if I can just touch his garment, if I can just touch his garment, I will be saved. I will be made well. That's literally what that word means. And so here she is, probably incognito, pressing through the crowd to try to do what? Lay hold of Christ. If I can just lay hold of Christ. But do you see a problem with that? Same problem. You think she knew the Levitical law? You better believe she did. How many times had she been declared unclean? How many times had she accidentally bumped into somebody at the marketplace? How do you think that went over? And now, just like the ruler of the synagogue, she is desperate and at the end of her rope, and she's heard about Jesus and she has come to lay hold of this man. And that's what she does. She demonstrates that faith by laying hold of Christ. It says in verse 20, she came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment. She really believed. She really believed that touching him would heal her. Guess what happened? She is instantly and completely healed, it says. Look, verse 22, instantly the woman was made well. Mark says, immediately the flood of blow dried up. Luke says, immediately the discharge of blood ceased. And guess what? She knew it. She knew it. But Mark says, she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediate healing, immediate relief. Probably felt the best she's ever felt in 12 years. Instantly clean. Curse 
gone. Outcast status canceled with one touch from Christ. Now, look at verse 22. Again, this is Matthew condensing a whole lot of awesome detail. But it says in verse 22, Jesus turned. So, so the woman comes up behind him and just touches his garment. And Jesus turned. And, and this is where you really need to play the movie in slow motion. Because there's some unbelievable stuff happening right there. As Jesus turns to address her, Mark says this. Mark says, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, turned. Luke says, Jesus actually said something about this. He said, somebody touched me. I perceive that power, power has gone out from me. Now, if anybody wants to come up here and explain that, you're welcome to. What an incredible thing. Power had gone out from Jesus. And he knew it. He, he perceived it. So you've got this incurable, unclean woman who touches Jesus and is immediately restored. And she feels it in her body. And then you got Jesus at the same moment, not perceiving the touch, but per perceiving the power come out from him. This is what's going on. And if you really consider that, you have to ask, I think the same question that the disciples asked after the storm. What sort of man is this? Think about what, what's going on here. Think about what Jesus is saying when he says power just left. Jesus has life in himself. Just like he had power to put the brakes on the megastorm, he has power in himself to rearrange and restore molecules in the human body. But notice something else here. She's the only one in the crowd that's getting this disease re re reversing power from Jesus. He's, he's pressed all the way around. Everybody's touching him. Matter of fact, the disciples are stunned when Jesus even asked the question, who touched me? They're like, what do you mean who touched you? Who didn't touch you? But she's the only one. Why? Jesus explains that in verse 22. When he turns, he says something to her. He says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Now think about how true that is. What if she had never heard about Jesus? What if she had never heard those reports about Jesus? She'd have stayed home. She wouldn't have ran after Jesus. She wouldn't have fought through the crowd. She wouldn't have tried everything just to lay hold of Christ. She would have perished in her uncleanness. But she heard and believed and came and laid hold of Christ. Her faith saved her. She came and found new life and Forgiveness, And I say that because look at what Jesus says. This sounds familiar. Take heart, 
You've been made well. He just said this to somebody else. He said, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Don't forget that Jesus is doing these miracles to show a great miracle behind the scenes. That he has the power not only to forgive, but to heal, but to forgive. Now, here's a question. Was this woman healed by the power of Christ or by her faith? This is where everybody says yes. She is healed. She is saved by the power of Christ through faith. Just like every sinner that's ever been saved is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, it's easy to forget that we're actually on the way to a miracle. Like, don't forget that this is, this is all happening on the way to this dead little girl's house. And so right then, when Jesus says that, Matthew flips the scene to the ruler's house. And the funeral is already going on. There's a funeral already going on. It says in verse 23, when Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion. Now, who in the world is going to be playing a flute at a funeral? Well, apparently everybody. Like, we, we hire funeral directors. They hire professional musicians and mourners. And don't think they're there, you know, playing a happy tune. Whatever they're playing there was meant to stir up lamentations and to stir up mourning. And they had these professional grievers. You can imagine what it would sound like if you had a bunch of people you were paying to cry. And, and, and if you hired the best, which this guy was probably wealthy, Man, what would that sound like? That's why they use the word commotion. There's this wailing and crying of both professional mourners and real mourners, family and friends that are really grieving. And I want you to make sure you get in your mind what's really going on here. There's a real funeral going on here. And you need to, you need to see that so you can feel the shock value at Jesus' words. This is a real funeral. This little 12-year-old girl is really dead. There's people here with their hearts ripped out. If you've ever been to one of those extraordinarily sad funerals, you can imagine if somebody walks in and says, go away, they're not dead. That's what Jesus says. Verse 24, go away. For the girl is not dead, but sleeping. So when Jesus says, go away, that word literally means depart. Kind of like in chapter 7, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Same word. And you see in verse 25, he throws them out of the house. This is strong language. This is the same language where Jesus flips over the tables and drives them out of the temple. They're put out. He says, go away. No funeral today. Funeral's canceled. 
first off, it's got to be, what's going on? Who in the world is this? What do you mean the funeral's canceled? Jesus tells you why it's canceled, because she's not dead. And here you are in the viewing line, standing by the casket. And you're looking at this absolutely motionless, lifeless little girl who looks nothing like she did last week. And people are wailing in the background with heart-wrenching tears. And some man says, go away, she's not dead. How would you respond to that? How did they respond to that? It says they laughed at him. King James says they laughed him to scorn. They derided him. This, this is not a chuckle or a giggle. This is a mocking, a scoffing, like, like you don't see again until he's on the cross. He said, this girl's not dead, and they laughed at him. And here we are on the sidelines watching we're watching their unbelief and we're saying, yeah, Jesus, put them outside. Is that what you'd do? Somebody walked in a funeral and said they're not dead? You see, it seems like everybody's cool with a miracle up until we get here when they're dead. You know, we pray and pray when daddy's got cancer and then we give thanks to God when it's in remission. But nobody's out at the cemetery. Nobody's busting up funerals saying they're not dead. And when we do see some people do stuff like that, we call them crazy and heretical because of their over-realized eschatology. But Luke says they laughed. Because they knew she was dead. This utter, impossible irrevocability of death. What would you do if they walked in the funeral? You'd probably call the cops. Unless the one saying she's not dead was the Son of God. And he is. He says, go away, for the little girl is not dead, but she's sleeping. She's sleeping. And I don't think Jesus is laying out some sort of theological position on death, but I do think he's doing two things. One, he's, he's sort of broadcasting what he's about to do. Like, this is not going to end in death today. There's not a funeral going to happen here today. This is not the end for her. And then the second thing he's doing is he's letting us know that from God's perspective, the thing that we think is death is not death. It's not the end. It's the first death, but it's not the second death. It's appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. The, death, the thing we call death is actually just a summons to God. It's a summons to judgment. And if you die in your sin. Without this one right here, without Jesus Christ, if you die, you will face the second death, the lake of fire. But for us, 
who believe that this is the Christ, this is the Son of God, this is the one who has the power of life and death. But for us, we immediately are with the Lord. We believe that? If we believe that, we can stand there at a funeral and say, that's not him. He's in Christ. He's with the Lord. He's not dead. The earthly tent's laying there, but he's with the Lord. What great hope we have in Christ. Now, we see in verse 25 that he throws everybody out and it says he went in. Imagine that. Imagine that moment. The crowd's all gone. All of a sudden it's just it's deathly quiet. And, and he heads to the little girl's bed. Then we learn from Mark and Luke that there's only five people there with Jesus. It's the mom and the dad of the little girl. And it's Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And so Jesus goes in and it says he took her by the hand. And Matthew wants you to get that. In fact, he, even, he leaves out the words that Jesus says. He says, he took her by the hand. And I don't want you to miss the, the theology of what's going on here. Don't, don't miss the, these glimpses of the glory of Christ that are going on here. Don't, don't miss, first of all, the compassion and heart for, for this little girl. He, he takes this little girl by the hand. But don't miss the holiness and the perfection of Jesus Christ. This is a dead body. And then don't miss, obviously, the power over life and death. So he lays hold of these lifeless fingers. And now in less than an hour, Jesus has been touched by an unclean woman and he's holding the hand of a dead little girl. And so he takes her by the hand and he says two words, basically, in Aramaic, little girl, arise. Guess what happens? Like the power that went out to the woman with the discharge of blood, she goes from dead to alive. She arose. What do you think everybody in that room is feeling right now? What do you think the parents are feeling right now when, when she stands up and starts walking around? What about the disciples that are standing there witnessing what's going on? Mark tells us what they, it says they were immediately overcome with amazement. <laughs> Literally, they were astonished with mega ecstasy is what it says. I don't think you could express a stronger emotion than what's going on right there. And no wonder. That little girl's alive. And no wonder that the passage here ends with the report went all throughout the district. Now, 
What do we take away from that? What do we take away from this awesome historical account? A few things to observe. First, the human condition. Brothers and sisters, let's don't suppress the truth about the world we live in. This whole section is highlighting these awesome, powerful miracles by Jesus, but man, it is shining a light on human suffering. We do not live in the Garden of Eden. This is not paradise. Thorns and thistles abound because of sin. Human suffering abounds because of sin. Just look at what has gone on in just these chapters. Leprosy and strokes and paralysis and viruses and fevers, violent storms, insanity and demon possession, afflictions of all sorts. This chronic condition of this woman and this dead little girl. Man, this is not paradise. Human suffering abounds. Sin abounds everywhere you look. We don't need to suppress it. We need to understand it. And we need to understand that there's nothing we can do about it. That we are ultimately helpless and utterly dependent on God. Like the people in this story, we, we've come to this knowledge of the truth. We've come to realize that we're dependent on God and we like it. But you know, by default, we don't believe this. We've, we are self-sufficient. We're prideful. We think way too highly of ourselves. We've got money, we've got cell phones, we've got insurance, we've got all this medical technology, air conditioning, rocket ships, all these things. And I praise God for every one of them. But when it comes right down to it, you will find yourself at the end of your rope. We're helpless and dependent upon God. It's God who kills and gives life. It's God who wounds and heals. It's God who opens and closes the womb. He's the one who declares the beginning from the end. He's the one who determines our going and our coming. He's the one who gives life and breath and everything to everything. All mankind, every single breath, every lung is ever taken in is because of God. And the big difference between Christians and the rest of the world is that we know it. We know that. We acknowledge that because we know God. And we love it because we know God and because we know Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, let us do this. Like in this fallen world, in the midst of this abounding human suffering, let us demonstrate that trifecta of words that Paul uses all the time. Let us demonstrate faith, hope, and love in the midst of suffering. When it's your turn to suffer, 
Demonstrate faith. Suffer well. Trust in a sovereign and good God. Do like these people. Come to Jesus. Pray a lot. And when those around you suffer, demonstrate the love of Christ. Demonstrate the compassion of Christ. Weep with those who weep. Go to the funeral. Go to the hospital. Hold their hand. Comfort the brokenhearted. Pray with them. Pray alone. Pray a lot. And show hope. Whether it's your suffering or their suffering. Demonstrate the hope that we have in Christ. Show people you really do hope for the life to come. Show them, point them to the hope that is to come in Christ. Do that in the midst of a fallen world. The second thing you want you to see in this passage is the identity of Christ. This is something that, that Matthew and John, all the Gospels are, are laboring to do. They're wanting to show you exactly who Jesus is. Because that's going to make it more stunning when they get to the end and you see Him hanging on a cross for you. Look at Jesus. Look at His compassion to the helpless. Look at the Good Shepherd. He shows compassion. He says, take heart, my son. Take heart, my daughter. He weeps at Lazarus' tomb. He holds this little girl's hand. He follows this grieving dad. He's doing all these things because he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, a compassionate Good Shepherd. This is who he is. So come to him. This is the one that he says, come. This is the one seated on the throne of grace who says, come. Anytime you need help, come to me. He has compassion for the helpless. He's also the Christ, the Messiah. You know, John tells us on purpose, this is why he wrote his gospel. So that you would believe that. So that you would believe that this man walking around on earth is actually the one that God has been promising for hundreds of years, thousands of years. Here he is. And, and Matthew in these miracles has been laboring to show you all these different things so that he can bring you to this place in chapter 11 we haven't got to yet. When John the Baptist begins to question his own identification of the Messiah, he says, wait a minute, are you the one? Why am I in prison? About to get my head cut off. Are you the one? And how does Jesus answer John the Baptist? By quoting the Old Testament. By quoting all these promises that God has made that would identify the Messiah when he comes. He says, you go tell John what you see and hear. That the blind receive their sight, blind receive their sight, the lame they're walking, the lepers are cleansed, this woman is cleansed, the dead they rise. God talked about all this stuff hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus came, and then here he is. Jesus is the Christ. The one God has promised since the garden. He's also the Holy One of God. This is a confession Jesus 
uh, heard from Peter. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I've always loved what John says in this opening of his gospel, in that prologue when he says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you know why darkness cannot overcome light? Because darkness is nothing. Darkness can't dim the light. Light destroys the darkness. This is this metaphor for Jesus. And man, we see it in this passage. Jesus is the righteous one. In him there is no darkness at all. In him there is no sin. He has come to destroy the works of the devil, the works of darkness. And guess what happens when he touches the unclean thing? It don't go this way. It goes that way. When he touches the unclean thing, when he touches the impure one, guess what happens? He's not defiled. They're made clean. Whatever Jesus comes and touches becomes clean. The dead are made new. The wicked are justified. The unrighteous are made righteous. And the unholy become saints. Brothers and sisters, I want you to realize that this is the righteousness we have in Jesus Christ. An undefiable, undefilable, excuse me, Righteousness. We are the unclean that have been made clean. And I tell you something. Nobody can bring a charge against you. Nobody can defile you. Nothing can defile you. What God has declared clean is clean. Who God has justified is justified. In Jesus, we see clearly in this passage, that he is the source of life. Jesus is the life-giving son of God. You realize that all life comes from God. There is no other source for life than God. Everything created. Listen, the devil himself lives and moves and has his being because of God. If there's a molecule alive on the other side of the universe, it's alive because God says so. He's the only source of life. And here is this carpenter from Nazareth who takes hold of a dead little girl and life enters her body and she stands up and walks around. This is because the Son of God, Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of God has life in himself. I think this is one of the most remarkable statements Jesus ever says about himself in John 5. He says, just as the Father has life in himself, so has the Father granted the Son to have life in himself. I think about that passage a lot. I don't know why. I do know why. It's, it's, it's crazy remarkable. A man, the God-man, the man Christ Jesus has life in himself. What does that mean? Do you know what that means? I can't explain what that means. 
But this is why he walked out of that tomb on the third day. This is why he's called the author of life. This is why death could not hold him. This is why he's called the bread of life, the way, the truth, and the life, the resurrection, and the life. He who has the Son has life. He is life. There is no other. This is how he conquered death and brought immortality to light. He has life in himself. He's got the keys. He says, I got the keys to death. And man, he showed it here. He walks in that room and he turns the key and says, get up. Let this little girl out of the bondage of death. This is the Redeemer. What do you do with that information? You lay hold of Christ. That's what you do. You fight like this woman and go lay hold of Christ. You fall at his feet and you beg, give me life. And if you've got it, praise him and live the life he has given you to his glory. That's what you do. Whoever has the son has life. Man, I love that text. Last thing I want you to see. We've got in real history again these pictures of salvation. We, we've got God's humbling providence comes. Do you realize this? Sometimes, sometimes God breaks a man down. Sometimes he breaks a woman down. He brings them to the end of their self-sufficiency. He brings them to the end of their rope. And they cry out to him. This is what's happening. This happens in both of these cases. The ruler was brought low. The woman was brought low. They humbled themselves, broken before the Son of God. This is part of how God brings you to faith. This is how, part of how he gives you faith. That gift of faith. The only faith that saves that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Christ. And we see how Jesus just overcomes this uncleanliness. As Dustin preached this morning about our condition before we came to Christ. We were not holy and blameless. We were unclean, impure, under the curse of God, doing evil. And we laid hold of Christ, and it's gone. Dead in trespasses and sin. God comes and gives us life in Christ. Made us alive in Christ. The powerful saving grace of God. And last, don't forget what this is showing. This is showing that the resurrection is to come. Brothers and sisters, we have a life that's yet to come. If Jesus can raise this little girl from the dead, if he himself can walk out of that tomb on the third day, you better believe that when this body is in the grave, it's not in there forever. This is the hope in which we were saved, Paul says. The redemption of our bodies. The grave couldn't hold him, and the grave cannot hold us. We 
have eternal life now. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life now. He says you will never see death. You won't taste death. Do you believe that? Because I'm going to tell you something. If you believe that, we say this a lot, but if you believe that, that changes everything. This is how Paul faced all of those unbelievable things he faced. This is why Paul gave his life. This is why the apostles, all of a sudden, man, everything changed when they saw Christ and the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who grants us eternal life? If so, worship Him with your life. Worship Him with your life. And long for the day when He comes back. Let's pray. Father, our sin has ruined us. Our sin had estranged us from you. We were cut off from the tree of life. No hope. Helpless. But you sent your son into the world to save sinners. And when it pleased you, you revealed your son to us and gave us life. Father, I pray that you would build up your people, that you would increase their faith and their worship of Jesus Christ. And for the ones here that don't know him, and they know they don't know him, break that bondage for them right now today, please. Draw them to Jesus Christ. Help them, Lord, to take hold of Christ and live. Bless the preaching of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.